welcome to MotoPod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 729. Today is the 18th of May, 2023. I'm your host, Jim McDowell. Joining me from across the pond in the UK, as always, Richard Jowett. Richard, how was that weekend of racing? Spectacular, I thought. It was awesome, Jim. Absolutely, yeah, loved every moment of Le Mans this year, and it stayed dry as well, so very much looking forward to chatting about it. There's a lot to chat about. In fact, there's so much to chat about. We were actually texting back and forth during the race. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like, hmm, I wore out my thumbs, which I need to be doing thumb exercises, I guess, or take lessons from my kids on how to text faster. So (laughs) that's that. Also, people uh, will do this all the time, but if you could help with the show by donating, that'd be super great. You can go to our website, www.motopod.com. There are links to PayPal and Patreon there. It could be as little as two bucks a month. For a subscription. It really helps us keep the lights on, server space, all the other things that we're trying to do to make the show more enjoyable with different things. It helps out with all that. And if you can't, that's fine. We understand. But hey, if you like the show, please go to your podcast provider and give us a rating and a little review because that'll help us get back to the top of the algorithm there. And everything that you can do for us helps make us better. And we just want more people to enjoy the show. Yeah. With that said, we have people who have wrote in and we got a ton of cool things from listeners this week so we're just going to jump right in and let's just go right there right off the bat the first one was from jake rowler now jake was commenting on our discussion that we had about uh moto america and all the changes of racing and why it's not at the height that it was in the 90s and everything and and basically Jacob has some really interesting things to say. He says, regarding the discussion of Moto America and comparing it to the golden era of AMA road racing, there is a single economic statistic that I have not heard mentioned, and I believe it to be the most important explanation for why the pedigree of this series has suffered so much. Sport bike sales. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but the last time I checked around 2017 or so, the number of sport bike sales per year was like 40% of pre-2018 Wall Street crash. I don't think you have to look a lot farther to explain why our domestic series has suffered so much. I think the DMG debacle did add fuel to the destructive fire, but it wasn't the biggest reason. Just my opinions, but I'm pretty sure I am right. Anecdotally, I see far fewer sport bikes on the road these days compared to the early mid-naughties. The adventure bike segment seems to be only expanding segment of motorcycle sales. Okay, that and small displacement sporty bikes, which I think is great. But those essentially didn't exist 15 years ago. So this was really cool because I, uh, Rich, you had a reply to this. Yeah. I replied to it. Lynn jumped in, but I think he just jumped in to criticize me for being old <laughs> and saying it, but talking about jetting yeah. uh, when probably it's tuning was probably a better word. to give. But that was just good <laughs> fun between friends. That's all that was. And then... Skyler jumped in as well. And Skyler pointed out that him and I talked in the offseason, had a really long conversation about Moto America, what was right, what was wrong. And I can't remember what episode that was, but if you search back into it, I think it was styled something like uh, chatting with Skyler Vicroy or Skyler Vicroy Returns. Skyler is definitely in the title of that episode. So hopefully you should easily be able to go back and see that one. For everyone else, you may want to know kind of what we thought about that at the time. But as I said, and try to briefly surmise what I said, I said, yeah, you know, you're right. I never did really consider the fact that people aren't really buying sport bikes here in the U.S., at least not at the rate of what they were buying them, you know, pre-crash uh, in 2008. But I think it's like a commercial airliner crash. There's no one reason why it went down. It's just there's a chain of events that happened in some order the engineers weren't expecting, and we have a disaster. And I think this happened here. To summarize, basically, you had 
AMA racing. They were looking to get onto a bigger scene, get a bigger name. They decided, and this is some controversy, is like, well, was it really 2007 that they sold it or was it 2009 that they sold it? Take your pick. Some sources say 2007 DMG owned it. Some people don't say it was until 2009. I think it's 2007. That's what I remember. But looking it up online, those two things are there. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the first thing AMA did was they created, a, they went to claiming rules for motorcycles, which meant that you could have a factory Ducati, factory Honda, factory Kawasaki, factory Suzuki. I guess it wasn't really Kawasaki, it was Muzzy. But the thing of it was, you could buy parts and pieces off of those bikes for a set number. I think a suspension was 10 grand. If you want the forks off of Matt Maladin Suzuki for 10 grand, you got them. Now, those forks were way more than 10 grand right off the bat. You could you could claim frames, you could claim engines, you could claim the whole motorcycle. In the rules, it was broken down to the, hey, here's what this is going to cost you. And it was trying, it was a way the AMA figured to sort of rein the factories in from being really having really crazy, really exotic motor, motorcycles. The AMA had always basically followed, <coughs> excuse me, loosely World Superbike rules except for they ran on, mostly everybody ran on a Dunlap tire as opposed to running on Pirellis. But the bikes were pretty much the exact same spec to each other. Well, that instantaneously pissed off Ducati. They left immediately when claiming rules. They were not going to have one of their 999s or whatever it was, 996, 998, 999 variation of motorcycles claimed for a measly $100,000. I don't know if that's the exact number. It was some number. And I guarantee you that Ducati was worth way more than $100,000. Somebody did claim the forks off Maladin Suzuki. I do remember that whole big about it. That really torqued a lot of people off. And anyway, that was the first thing. Well, then by 2008, Honda had had enough because they saw Maladin's forks get claimed. And they're like, no, not doing it. And they bailed. Now, of course, that's the economic crash. And Honda sold their Formula One team for one pound. One, one British pound, I should say, to Ross Braun. We all know how that worked out. Ross Braun won a world championship in 2009 in Formula One. So you have that. The other thing that I said that happened in, is that there was the rise of soccer here in the U.S. or football for you people on the continent. And kids started playing that. And then you factor that in with the price of the motorcycles and what it would cost you to go racing versus what it cost you for a set of, what do you call it, rich boots over there? Yeah, boots. Yeah, for a set of boots, some shin guards, a t-shirt and a soccer ball was like way less than it was going to be to have a motorcycle and go racing and travel around. And it gave another option. And rightly or wrongly, I think a lot of parents thought that that was a lot safer for their kid to play soccer than to play American football or ride a motorcycle or race a motorcycle. And it just wasn't interesting. Lynn chimed in there and he's saying, hey, look, our perception of what we think is cool is different today than it is to the kids today. They're not into transportation or motors or things at all. They don't see any of that as cool. Uh, it's the autonomous driving they think is cool and things of that nature. So they're not really into it. And so hence nobody's really there. You know, so if you add all those things kind of up, that's kind of where we got to. And, you know, DMG for bad or for good, you know, basically ran off Suzuki at the end of Maladin left after, after his 2010 season. Because his contract was over with Suzuki, he left. Uh, Spees had left and went to World Superbike. We know in 2009, we know how that worked out. And I, I admit, Moto America has taken. Bring Rainey then buys the thing, right? At its low point, Rainey steps into this is ridiculous. And Rainey said, "Well, we're just basically going to go back to a set of rules that was almost the equivalent of World Superbike." And he found out nobody could afford it the hard way. So now they've readjusted things and have worked their way back to more stockish bikes leaving us with what we have now 
and the racing has now come good. There's four or five guys that are going to be consistently at the front of Superbike class, and there's some good racing in the super sport class, and it's going to be on the rise. But is it ever going to go back to being at big name racetracks like it used to be? You could claim that it is because they're running their own race at Coda. So it's on the rise, and will it ever be what it was? No, but that's why they call it heydays. And as Kenny Roberts famously said, nostalgia is a disease. So maybe we should stop comparing it to the old 90s superbike racing and just explain it as it is. That's all I got. Like all of these things, Jim, my take on on it when I wrote back to Jake was that inevitably there's a lot of nuance around this stuff and it will be different from market to market or territory to territory. So, you know, I made the point that certainly my understanding in Europe and, and the UK, more specifically from my point of reference, is that yeah, sort of litre sport bike sales are massively down compared to what they would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, I'd sort of harken back to the heyday when we had Carl Fogarty, Neil Hodgson, you know, Chris Walker. From a British perspective, I'm talking, you know, had a lot of guys in the Superbike Championship and that massively promoted sales of the road-going versions of those bikes. And that's obviously much, well, the, the sales are not there now. Now, these bikes are a lot well not a lot more they are very very expensive a lot of these litre sports bikes now i mean you're not going to get much change out of what fifteen thousand pounds on one of these things if it's reasonably tricked up so it's a big financial commitment but the point i was making was that if you look at bsb as compared with motor america now bsb has been very stable in terms of its rules and its governance throughout that whole period Uh, and bsb is in rude health it's as good as it's ever ever been so the lack of sales of the road bikes doesn't seem to be affecting the race series here. So I was kind of saying, for example, and I might be talking out of my butt on this, but you know, Britain's a small country, so it's easy to build a fan base that can travel around and follow the race series around, much more difficult in the USA. So, you know, all of these things obviously play a part, but clearly what happened, what you were talking about in your response, Jim, around 2008, and that whole kind of, um, I mean, the, the bottom just fell out of the series, didn't it? With various different things going on, financial, organisational, and so on. But it's, at least it's good to see that it's climbing back up that ladder a little bit. And this year is going to be, already is, I would argue, based on the first race at Road Atlanta, is looking like one of the better race seasons we'll have had in, over in the States in the Superbike class for quite some time. And it's good that, just to mention it, Scott's coming back on board with a little bit more kind of activity trackside for us as well to report on some of this stuff, as indeed you will be doing later in the year as well, Jim. So, you know, we'll keep a close eye on Moto America because... You know, if the first round was anything to go by, it's going to be a damn good season, I think. Yes, hopefully it will be. So stay by for like that good stuff, because I know uh, this weekend is Barber, and I know Scott Bolton will be in attendance, and he's going to drag in some interviews, so be good to hear. Next was uh, Matt Pacha. He had a comment about the Petco uh, Maverick crash, and who's at fault with that? So, Rich, why don't you walk us through that one? Yeah, I'll pick this one up. So, yeah, so Matt, is it Pataccio or Pataka? I, I, Never quite sure with name pronunciations, but uh, sorry if we got that wrong, Matt. But anyway, Matt says, uh, did you guys happen to notice Pecco was cutting across Mark, Marquez, the same way he cut across Maverick? I watched him race against Mark in the sprint race and was getting frustrated watching him do that multiple times. I think Mark is afraid to get in trouble right now, so he wasn't pushing back. Can't say it surprised me what happened Sunday with him and Maverick. That was 100% Pecco's fault, in my opinion. So... I think, again, my response was around the lines that, well, my take on the Peko Maverick clash on the Sunday race was that that was just a pure racing incident of two guys looking for the same piece of tarmac, slightly unsighted, lack of peripheral vision because of having a helmet on and stuff like that. 
so that was kind of my take we'll talk about it probably a little bit more as we go into the actual main race discussion in terms of the Mark Marquez thing yeah I mean I I tend to agree and I think you were on board with this as well Jim where he was obviously looking to try and keep his nose clean as much as he could I mean he was crashing a lot over the weekend you know pushing that new Calex chassis to its absolute limits finding where those limits are but was taking it a little bit easier on track in the races than perhaps we might have expected. So good comment from Matt. Uh, completely see what he's saying. And it is one of those things people will read it in a different way. Interestingly, this time, the race stewards decided to take no action whatsoever. Read into that what you will in terms of what's going on with race stewarding and penalties and stuff. But I'm personally pleased that they didn't adjudicate that one person was more at fault than the other. I think probably... I'll go with Matt in the sense that I think if one or other was more responsible between Pecco and Maverick, I think probably it was slightly more on Pecco, but just one of those things for me. Yeah, I, that was Pecco's line. That's what he raced the whole time. He was able to turn the Ducati, square it off a little bit, and get back on it. And you had in the case of the sprint with Marquez, Mark was probably maybe a little frustrated by that because obviously the Ducati's got more acceleration. So I think that's more what Mark is actually I don't want to say upset about, but more of what Marquez's problem was with that. The first guy there who's got a wheel on you has it. Now, when you go to the Vignales incident with Paco, you kind of got to say the same thing. We'll cover it more in more in depth, as you said, Rich, there when we get to the race. But again, it was all just that's Paco's line. He had a bike that could do that, and he did. And that's that. It was a racing incident. All of this was, you know, it was a good racing weekend for me and whilst there were some penalties that inevitably cropped up that was probably the most controversial one of the weekend I think and yeah the race stewards decided to let it go which is hopefully a good sign for the future because there was some other stuff off track going on with the stewards and the riders starting to try and have a bit more open dialogue although inevitably things that were said in the meeting on Thursday or Friday didn't quite materialise as the weekend went on, uh, which you probably could have predicted. But uh, just to finish off my thought back to Matt, you know, I thought, although again, I don't think there has actually been any official reprimand. I thought if they were going to get into trouble, and I'm talking about Maverick and Banyar again here, it would have been for the fact that they had a a bit of a handbags at dawn moment in the gravel trap once the sort of dust semi settled. But um, they obviously made up fairly quickly straight after that once the initial kind of emotions had died down a little bit so i guess again perhaps race direction just gave him a bit of a let on that one which is the right thing to do i think the interesting thing about i saw pekka's tweet was i think was it late sunday early monday it came out i don't know it depends on where you are in the world as to when you saw it but he seeded it out like hey it was emotion it was the heat of the moment we're all over it we're all okay hey Huh, if you got enough to sit there and do that right after you have a little fisticuffs with Maverick in the gravel trap, how come you don't have that to tell everybody you're sorry about drinking and driving? <laughs> you you stayed silent about that and washed that under the rug. And I'm I'm not one to judge, and maybe that's what your PR people told you to do. Maybe your PR people wrote it. I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. I'm just I I like to me. There's two sides to every coin, and I don't know the whole story on either one of these. But I'm looking at this from an outside. You have a small little pushing match in a gravel trap and it's all apologetic and everything on Twitter. You drink and drive and you get pulled over for it and you're doing it illegally and it is just literally washed underneath the table. Uh, I don't care for that. I think if you're who you are, I mean, the way I try to live my life, it's right or wrong. I stay up for my mistakes, say I made a mistake and 
say, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. He did later on, but I'm just, my point is this was instantaneous. And then, you know, all that took like a week or two before things came through there. So I'm, we're going to come to something in the news at the moment, which kind of, I suppose, is part and parcel of this whole discussion. You know, I just think this is an inevitable consequence. And I very much reference, you know, Formula One in this regard, where there's sort of so much dialogue, so much interference by race direction. And, you know, asking all the riders to give their opinion on how the rules should be adjudicated is a disastrously bad thing to do because you'll never satisfy anybody. And every rider we know and every race car driver in an instant there's their take on it and then there's the take of the person the other person or the other people that were involved in whatever the incident might have been and those opinions rarely line up so i just think the more we invite all this kind of whinging and moaning and opinion kind of coming in it doesn't really serve a purpose to me you just need a strong kind of i'm a sort of firm advocate of you know a democracy of sorts but with a dictator at the top now i think race direction in that role is completely into overreach but that's, as I've said many times, I think a fault of the rules as they're constructed at the moment. But, you know, you watch your average Formula One race, you know, with all the pits to car or car to pits radio. And I mean, it's like a bunch of school children whining and moaning constantly. And we don't really, or I personally really don't think that would be good to have more and more of that in MotoGP. So hopefully that's not what's going to happen. Yeah, you're right. That I, I agree with you 100% with that stewarding. Uh, th- this happened years ago. Um, here in the U.S., we have our own open wheel series, IndyCar. But at the, at the time this happened, they were split into two different racing bodies, and one was Champ Car. Anyway, they had problems with people wanting to weave and block and things of that nature with the cars, which open wheel cars, you touch each other once somebody's going upside down. Yeah. Or at least getting up in there. They, I cannot remember off the top of my head who they installed as the steward, but he was judge, jury, and executioner of it. And basically, he came down hard on everybody. And he, it was identical. If you had moved, you did more than your one move, you were done. You got the penalty. It was immediate. You got, I don't remember what it was, black flag, stop and go. I, I don't know what they were. I don't remember back then. But it was fair. And I do remember the drivers all saying, my God, at least it's consistent. We now know what is going to happen. We know that if you do X, why result is going to happen. Yeah. And that's all I think. I think you and I would agree. If you had one chief steward who could overrule the other two's opinion, and as long as there was consistency across the board for what looks like identical penalties, I think we'd all be happy. Well, I, again, I don't want to sort of irritate the listeners by sort of constantly going over the same thing, you know, over and over again. But in a race, people are going to have incidents with each other. There's going to be a bit of rubbing. I mean, that's kind of what the riders like a lot of the time from what I can gather from what they've said. And it's certainly always been like that. I mean, if we look at the pre Freddie Spencer era, Stuart, and I think the guy was Mike Webb was, uh, you yes. know, there weren't all these rules about, oh, well, if you touch them, you, you know, you have to have this penalty, although they might apply a different penalty because that's the kind of anarchic situation that we're in at the minute. So, Although I'm still sitting on the fence a little bit about the Mark Marquez incident in Portimao at the beginning of the season, you could say that was a clear case of a rider who was just pushing far too hard and caused an avoidable accident. I could live with that if I was Mark Marquez. And he kind of threw his hands up and said, no, I was in the wrong on that one anyway. But to sort of say that the Morbidelli or the Quattararo incidents that we saw at Jerez were penalty worthy, well, we had that discussion in the last show, Jim, and I just didn't think either of those things warranted a penalty because they were first lap incidents 
and they were sort of the sorts of things that happened and years gone by nobody would have blinked an eye at that and most of the riders wouldn't have blinked an eye at that stuff you know because it evens itself out over the course of a season anyway in terms of who gets affected and who sort of perpetrates these the things so yeah it's just all a bit too complicated at the moment but inviting the riders in now to sort of try and give their two penneth worth in the adjudication process is disastrous really because as i said you'll just end up with a bunch of whingers you know at every race at every decision and the more dawner as we're going to talk about in a minute, promotes this kind of off-track angst and debate. I think it sullies the sport and just introduces a, a, a sort of a soap opera element that, for me, is not really where we want to be going. But, I'm, I mean, other people can may have a completely different view on that. But for me, I'm old school. I'd rather just put the visor down, race. If somebody does something catastrophically stupid, OK, give them a penalty. But the rest of the time, let them get on with it. Fair enough. Well, why don't you handle... Handle the last feedback, Rich. Yeah, so uh, just very, very quickly, um, Jeremy Burnish, who's another of our Patreons, uh, so thanks to the guys that have been commenting in because these are Patreons mostly. This was picking up on the little shout-out, and again, I don't want to keep on going on about the same people, but I've got a little bit of a kind of soft spot for Asher Durham because, you know, he's been very good in terms of chatting to us on the show. He had that difficult start to the season because his main sponsor pulled the rug right at the 11th hour, so he didn't actually get to compete in the first round on the BSB calendar. So he's not in BSB, he's in um, Superstock 600. So he m- missed the first round, but managed to get some funds together and had this idea of having this kind of sponsor board where you could throw in $50 or £50 or whatever and have some pictures and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so Jeremy uh, wrote to say, hey guys, I just wanted to say that my chocolate company, that piqued my interest because I like a bit of chocolate, is now one of Asher 64's crew. So his board is called The Crew. I sponsored a rider for the first time. Seems like a good dude. So I'm super happy to do a little to help him out. So I just wanted to give a shout out because I think it's great that, you know, we've been able to help Asher in that little way. Now it's obviously Jeremy's generosity with his company that's been able to do that. He and I then had a little bit more of an exchange. Uh, and it turns out that Jeremy kind of is a, well, Jim, you've met him. I think you said at one of the rounds last year. Yeah. We were at pit race last year. We met each other. Is really cool. Cool guy. Um, I didn't realize he was a chef until I actually followed him on Instagram. So he seems to be like a very creative culinary expert. Yeah. And indeed, in this particular case, what he's actually done over and above a bit of sponsorship money for Asher is to create, literally create a chocolate bar, uh, which kind of picks up on Asher's. He's got this little logo, which is like a a donut sort of um, figure. I'm not quite sure what the reason for that is. I'll perhaps ask him when I see him. So, yeah, Jeremy's created a sort of chocolate bar, which has kind of got donut sprinkles in it. Uh, it's a coffee, uh, an almond milk thing. Sounds delicious, actually. And he's created um, bespoke, what would you call it? You know, like the wrapper and stuff. So it's got Ash's name on it. I'll put the photos. He sent me some photos of it. I'll, I'll see if I can stick them on the, the Motorpod website on the blog section. I'm sure Jeremy won't mind me doing that. So, yeah, and I just felt it would be good just to give Jeremy's company a quick shout out so um, again i'm going to try and pronounce this correctly because it's quite an unusual name but it's called uda lolly this particular chocolate brand uh www.udalolly.com so head over there you can buy the chocolate online uh, and i'm sure jeremy will be pleased to hear from anybody from the race pod community and from the race bike community uh, yeah because he's obviously a super fan and doing his bit to help a racer so yeah fair play and hopefully a few more people can do that as well yeah so for the name, because you're probably not going to be able to actually get it from the pronunciation. So it's www.oodaalolly.com. Yeah. So go over there, take a look, buy a chocolate bar. Hopefully we'll stick it, on the, stick it on the website and people yep. can go and have a look for it for themselves. We'll put a link there. Yep. 
All right, news to the news quickly. Epic weekend at Le Mans. I'll agree. Largest weekend crowd ever. Uh, I don't know. Was that a bit of marketing spin because it was a thousandth race? Do you think? Yeah, or I think so. Yes, genuine. Yeah, I there did appear to be quite a few people in the grandstands per the pictures that are there. Uh, was the largest MotoGP crowd ever? I don't know. I've not been at Magello when they've had a massive crowd when yeah. Rossi was there. I mean, I think there was probably equal, easily as many people there as was in Mons. I, I think it's just hype, right? So I think we'll just let that one be, gloss, right? Gloss over that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably gloss over most of this news, <laughs> to be honest with you. Oh, second thing. Were the words uh, Ben Yai and Herve Poncherelle talking about how there needs to be slower independent bikes? Rich, your thoughts on this? I need to dig into the detail of this a little bit more. I picked up on this earlier on, listening to another podcast, and then had a. There is an article on uh, the MotoGP.com website around this, and this kind of goes to the heart of almost, to use a very British phrase, I don't know if you have one or it's the same in the States, Jim, but sort of airing your dirty laundry in public. Uh, yeah, is, we use that one, yeah. Same when thing. you kind of have people starting to disagree very publicly and you kind of use that almost as a way of promoting the series. Again, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword that if you're not careful. So my understanding is that Peko Banyai might be kind of just a little bit, well, he's a bit pissed off that Marco Bezek is one point behind him on a bike that's a year old. And I suppose his point is that he may be dreaming of the olden days when there was quite a big gap between people that were on works machines and then everybody else who was on, you know, far inferior equipment of varying degrees. So I kind of understand why he would think that. Now, Herve Poncherol, of course, is the boss of Tech 3 running independent bikes, although they're semi-works, is clearly going to have a completely different opinion on that and is kind of calling them out. And, you know, So this is all going on in the public forum and Dawn is kind of promoting this uh, disagreement almost for clickbait, which you, know, you can take, again, not my cup of tea. Other people might think that's great. It creates interest perhaps maybe it brings some new people in that wouldn't otherwise be interested i'm not convinced about that but i don't know i mean just as a concept though if that is what peko is suggesting what's your take jim because we do know that the fact that all the bikes are very close in spec and all very very good creates very close racing and so that creates other issues which you know we've talked about a lot but do we really want to go back to people being lapped after 15 laps no i don't think we do one, this is clickbait, right? Mm, Two, me, I, think. I, well, I agree with you, right? It, you drive people to the website to generate clicks to what they, we've said it before, there is good press, bad press, no press. And so they're, Dorna's going to run with this one, right? They're going to try to like amp this up to get that people to tune in and look at this. Um, the other problem, I think, you're right. Ben Yai is just mad that he's only one point ahead. Well, guess what? Don't fall off the bike. You fell off twice. Yeah. Don't fall off. People who don't fall off tend to win, tend to win championships. That's sort of how this game plays. The other part of this is, is like, come on, man. Seriously, you want a slower independent bike? I, I don't think Ben Yai has said that. There's, I've seen just blurbs that what he said and what's actually being promoted is completely different, or at least somebody's skewing some words. Imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. I know. So I'm not going to try to tread in that one. But the problem is that you have a couple of things here quickly. One, do you think Ducati gave Rossi's team all the information on how to set up that motorcycle from last year? Yes or no? Well, I would say yes. Yes, they did. They gave them everything that they needed. 
Yeah. They gave them everything. They, it, it, Ducati's vested, vested interest is not in you winning a world championship. It is Ducati winning a world championship, and we don't give a crap who's on the bike who does it. Okay. Second thing is we have developed these motorcycles to a point that I don't know that there is any way that you could look at it and go, wow, that's not a good motorcycle, right? We're, we're, it's the, the gap that you have between a new 2023 and the 2022 is so small there's not a lot to find anymore mm. you're, you're not going to have a factory bike that's a tenth faster all the time because they got some new whiz bang part you know it, that was in the old 500 days you had that because you had different cylinder jugs with different porting or a different pipe or something that gave that bike the ability to go faster it just did right and yeah, you yeah. if you were on a well i think they had i know in the 250 class they had kits you could have a factory bike then there was an a kit and there was a b kit and if you couldn't afford the you know, to buy the B kit, you got basically a production a stockish bike, if you will. So yeah, eh, I don't know. Mm. Another one we should just gloss over. Yeah, well, again, I'm interested there. to know what listeners think about this. You know, people understand in a bit more detail than I do. Certainly, what exactly was said. Yep. But yeah, a bit again, a bit unedifying, which is a word that I seem to use a lot when it comes to the promotion of MotoGP. Yeah, and then you've got well, the debate over penalties isn't over. That's just well, let's just cover that. When we'll we get come to, to that. We'll come to we'll that. We'll come yeah. to that one. Uh, why don't you tell us about World Superbike and BSB quickly? Yeah, just very, very quickly, a bit of World Superbike news. So Tom Sykes has parted ways with the Pachetti Kawasaki squad. So what we had, I think, four rounds in World Superbike. I think Tom finished one race out of, what would it be, 12 on that bike. Loads of electronic gremlins. However, I suspect what absolutely hastened that exit from Pachetti was the fact that Michael Vandermark got Seriously injured, as we discussed in uh, Assen, a horrendous high side, which uh, broke his leg quite badly. So he's going to be out for several months, at least, I would think. So given that Sykes used to work for the, the Works BMW squad, I guess that was a fairly straightforward negotiation for him to go in and substitute for the next probably two, three, four rounds. What happens after that, who knows? But they had a test at Mazzano the next round is in Mazzano between the 2nd and 4th of June. So the World Superbike teams all rocked up there a week or so ago to do a test. And lo and behold, Sykes was the quickest BMW, faster than Scott Redding. So, you know, he hasn't lost his speed. He's perhaps not quite as, as hungry as he was once upon a time, certainly when he won his championship in World Supers. But um, yeah, so that's Tom Sykes' news. And more interestingly, actually, is... And this obviously will inevitably link across his, to some extent into MotoGP is that the... Sort of 2024 silly season rumor mill is really sort of kicking into gear now. Only Johnny Ray at Kawasaki and now Alvaro Bautista at Ducati have 2024 contracts. Everybody else is out of contract. Everything is up for grabs. And just to stray into MotoGP territory, I don't know if you've heard this one, Jim, but it's starting to look and sound increasingly unlikely that Jorge Martin will go to Yamaha because man, if he does, who would want to? <laughs> I suppose is you know given where we are after a few rounds and the position that Yamaha find themselves in. So it would appear to be the case that there's going to be pressure for Bezeki to get promoted up to one of the slightly higher teams, although I suppose VL46 may take issue with that. It sounds as if room will be made at Pramac with Zarco potentially going across to replace Michael Ruben Rinaldi at the Ducati World Superbike squad. So Zarco going across to partner up with Bautista as a sort of ex-MotoGP rider super team thereby allowing Bezeki to get across to Pramac and and then Morbidelli going over to VR46 
who won't let him fall out of the championship. Hmm. That's interesting. Who jumps on the Yamaha is another question altogether. Mm. Raul Fernandez. Probably not a massive queue of people uh, knocking on Lynn Jarvis's door for that ride at the moment. But that Raul might change as, as year goes on. Well, yeah, he's not setting the world on fire on the Aprilia, is he? So yep. He wanted that bike for a long time. So, hey, here's your chance, kid. Yeah. More to come on that because obviously there's lots of rides up for grabs. Lots of people likely to be on the move. So we'll, we'll talk about that more as the year goes on. So that was World Superbike. Just very briefly, BSB. So Donington Park. I'm going to try and head up to Donington for the day just to catch up with a few riders uh, and team members. So hopefully we'll have a few more little sort of snippety interviews to pop into one of the next shows. Other than that, I mean, my expectation is that Tommy Bridewell, uh, Glenn Irwin and Josh Brooks are going to be the favourites going into the three races this weekend. But the likes of Kyle Ride and Jason O'Halloran, who have... Done okay. Carl Ride did win a race, I believe, in the first round at Silverstone, but they've been rather overshadowed by Bridewell, Irwin and Brooks. So they'll be looking to get themselves more firmly into the mix before the points gap gets too big. And Donington, big, wide open, sort of almost GP level track. It suits some people more than others. So it'll be interesting to see how people fare because you couldn't, I mean, perhaps it's not a huge difference, but certainly Donington and Autumn Park, where I was, you know, the last round, they're pretty different places. So if people are starting to show strong at Silverstone, Alton, Donington, it really does start to paint the picture that that's where the favourites for the championship will start to emerge, I think, after this weekend. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that rounds out. And Jim, have you got anything to say about Moto America round two, I think, at Barber Motorsports Park in Alabama, is it, this weekend? Yeah, great, great track at Barber. If you ever go, go to the museum. It's fantastic. They open up things that you don't get to see other than on race weekends. Two, look for Bobier, Heron, Jake Gagne, and Cam Peterson, Gagne's teammate, to all be at the front, and Matthew Skoltz to be right there, too. He's very good. So there's five guys, probably, that you're going to have at the front, and look for it on YouTube. I believe it's going to be free, not geo-blocked again, yep. on YouTube. So check it out. I got a feeling we're going to be some good racing on there. I know I'm going to check it out on YouTube. So, uh, Yeah, uh, for me, possibly one of my favourite tracks in the state. Not that I have intimate knowledge of them, and obviously I haven't been to any of them in person, but Barber is a stunning place to watch beautiful. from a television point of view. Yeah, It's beautiful. It's, it's, it is absolutely country club groomed grass level of immaculance. <laughs> it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. We did mention, I think, earlier on, but Scott's going to be there this weekend. And then just to finish off the news, TT sort of roads news. We had the Northwest 200 in Northern Ireland last weekend. For the most part, the races passed off without too much serious incident. Although on the Thursday practice, I think it was, uh, Lee Johnston, who's uh, one of the sort of the well-known riders in the BSB paddock, but does the roads as well. He had quite a serious crash at Church Corner. That's kind of in the town. So if you fall there, you're going to hit something solid pretty quickly. And although the news initially that was put out was that it wasn't really serious, it transpired later on that he had had all sorts of interventions to get him to hospital in time. Let's just put it that way. Is quite badly beaten up, but is expected to make a you know pretty full recovery, I believe, although it's going to take some time. So you'll join me, Jim, I'm sure, in wishing Lee a speedy recovery. And you know we'll hope to see him back on track soon the sort of the real big talking well there were two big talking points from northwest 200 really the first was that glenn Irwin, who's the bsb rider so on his same beer monster ducati panigale he won both of the superbike races so that stretches his winning streak uh, in the superbike class at northwest 200 to eight straight wins now which has got to be some sort of a record i would think 
would need to check on that. But I mean, he's pretty well untouchable on the superbike around the triangle at the moment. But the really interesting thing that came up, and again, there's a lot of detail and nuance around this, so I mustn't stray too far out of my sort of knowledge boundaries here. But in the Superstock class, the FHO racing team, which again is the BSB team that runs Peter Hickman and Josh Brooks, both of whom were taking part in the road races. So they went through scrutineering at the beginning of the week, went through all the practice sessions, untroubled. And then, have you heard about this, Jim? No, I, I had not heard of this at all. You're going to like this. So they go through all of the practice, all the scrutineering, no problems. And then literally, I think, 30 minutes before the first Superstock race on the Thursday evening, the race officials say, sorry, you're excluded from the race. You can't compete because the bikes are breaking the technical rules. And basically what had happened was the Northern Irish Road Racing Association or whatever it's called have slightly different rules to everybody else. And they have a rule that says you cannot run a bike in a race which has carbon wheels. Now, the BMW M1000R R in Superstock trim is homologated for a competition with carbon wheels. So FHO said, well, look, we can put metal wheels on, but the race organiser said, no, you can't run those because they're not homologated. So FHO were left in the position where they had no choice but to pack up the trucks and go home because they weren't allowed to race the wheels that are legal everywhere else, but they equally weren't allowed to swap to a legal wheel because they weren't homologated to that bike. So it's been a bit of a PR disaster really all around in terms of the fact that this went on throughout the whole week and then it was only right before the first race that they were due to take part in, that this was the sanction was brought against them and they basically had no choice but to go home. Whether this will have legal ramifications, because, you know, FHO Racing, in fact, I chatted to Faye Ho, who's the boss, the owner and the boss of FHO Racing in my little Alton Park ditty in the last show or the show before that. So there may be some ramifications from this. I don't know. But, you know, that is a big operation, that team. And to take all the trucks, all the personnel, you know, all the gear from mainland UK over to Northern Ireland, do the amount of running that they did through practice never mind the fact that people are putting themselves in danger by running those practice laps and qualifying laps and then to be told you can't race because the bikes are legal i think is a bit dubious to say the least so any thoughts on that jim that's a sticky wicket because like okay if the bikes homologated for carbon wheels okay but then you say no you can't you say you're okay at tech you're okay at scrutineering sorry they're the same for whatever you practice it just right before the race they say no you can't that's like no and then like well we'll put i would guess it was a magnesium wheel would be my guess probably yeah you can't put that on either that seems like i well how what well, i don't and i would have thought i mean bike racing in general but certainly road racing in particular it's a real kind of help each other out, sort of pat each other on the back yeah. kind of an environment. So I think, you know, had this come out a bit earlier and been sort of fronted to all of the teams and said, look, can we make a dispensation for, well, in this case, it was the FHO racing team. Whether there are other teams that are affected by this, I'm not quite sure. But, you know, allow them to run magnesium wheels, whatever the material would be, which, OK, they're not officially homologated to the bike under the international rules or whatever. But to get them through this event, because we have a slightly different versions of the rules shall we all have a consensus agreement that they're allowed to compete and i would put some money down to the fact that most teams would have said if not all teams would have said yeah fine let's do that as a compromise Mm -hmm. but it was all left right to the last minute and you know no solution could be found so it was terrible so where does that leave them for the tt the tt have run to the more ordinary uh, international rule so the carbon wheels are allowed so that's not an issue there 
it's ah, just right. it was just an office 200 so okay. yeah I don't know, I'm Great. thinking I don't know if I want to run around the Isle of Man on a carbon wheel but I, well that's a different... I, I just I mean I know from 1985 when Spencer had it on his bikes to now in 2023 I, I get the technology has progressed but somewhere in me inside of me I'm thinking you nudge a con uh concrete curb on the street somewhere and just because carbon fiber is good in one direction only I I, I just I whoa, okay yeah it's just a little freaky to me but all right <laughs> we'll take note of what wheels people are running when the yes. TT starts because oh, well the final thing to. to mention is that the TT does kick off fairly shortly so uh Monday the 29th we'll see the opening of proceedings in terms of practice week uh, yeah. So the yeah the TT runs Monday twenty ninth May through right. to tenth of June yeah so yep. we'll be uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that uh, yep. when that event starts to take place yeah and don't forget on the Isle of Man website there is links to get to the Beyond the TT which is from what I hear really cool I've not seen it yet haven't had the time that's my fault let's get to Moto GP that's why we're here right Rich yeah better do okay so let's start out with Moto GP qualifying. Um, there was not really anything interesting that happens in Q1 um, other than it's Quattro Renz, Mir, and Marini are all in that particular session. Uh, Quattro had blistered to a good time, but at the end, uh, Augusto Fernandez would pip him, and then Marini would pip Augusto Fernandez. So Quattro was out. He was going to start like 16th, which would be like his worst qual- worst qualifying amazing and like forever inside of MotoGP. In the second qualifying session of the first run, it was Vinales, it was Marquez, it was Martin, Miller, Benyai, and Zarco. The, then uh, Vinales had some kind of technical problem with the motorcycle when they went out for the second run. They put a tire on. He got to the end of the the the, the pit lane and he, and he stopped. And you could see him just, you know, jacking the throttle. It wouldn't run. It was speculated that maybe the speed pit lane speed limiter was stuck. I don't think it was. I think it might have been the fly-by-wire throttle sensor maybe quit or failed or broke or something. Yeah, They did take it back down. Um, Ricardo Rossi is my hero for running uh, down the pit lane, pushing Maverick Vinales's bike uh, with Maverick on it. And then they tried, they probably tried to get it going. They did not succeed and they had to send him on the second bike, didn't they? Yeah, they, he went on the other no, they never made it back I'm out. I'm not sure he made it back out, actually. He did not no. make it back out. Yeah, I'm thinking of something else. So he did not make it back out. So that put Vinales out of the run for pole position. Now, Aleish went down on that turn one-two combination at about a hundred and about 190 miles an hour and slid forever. The front end just simply collapsed on him. It was they had really good that's bad to say, but the camber coverage was very good. You could just watch it just Pulled under in that heartbeat, and it was absolutely done. So that was a really crazy crash. Can I, Jim? Can I just say that the first thought I had when I saw that, bearing in mind we'd just seen Vinales with, I agree with you, it looked like a kind of a fly-by-wire failure of some sort. That crash at Spargo had my immediate thought was stuck throttle. It was sort of pushing so far offline before the front went down. I wondered if he'd had some sort of a technical glitch as well. Huh? I didn't notice him actually pushing for that long it looked like he was kind of understeering under huh. power when he was really wanting to turn okay i mean it could be maybe that's a uh, if gremlins like that are showing up in aprilia's that's really did you do sometimes good. see you know, i mean we for example we saw this sorry cutting back to a couple of races ago with the american racing team uh where sean dylan kelly and roy skinner both retired within a lap of each other with an actual 
problem that was exactly the same. So sometimes you see a repeat problem on on bikes because yeah. obviously prepared, you know, same, to same spec, same parts, and so on. But I'm probably 100 yeah. wrong. But it just looked like a weird crash to me. For me, from the engineering me, if I'm going to have that type of fly-by wire system, I'm not going to want it to fail in an open position. There'd either be a mechanical spring to close it if that happened, or some default setting that if it sensed that it couldn't close, it would kill the motorcycle I j- or, you know, essentially kill the fuel to the injectors or something like that. So I, but I don't know how that system works. I just quickly thinking I wouldn't, you wouldn't want to fail that no. way. No. Although we have to admit, oh gosh, Japanese rider Suzuka, was it Kato? Uh, had a fly-by-wire fall yes. stick open. Yeah, yeah, in 2003. And again, yeah. so maybe... It's good thought, Rich. Good thought. I I got to rewatch. Let's go one. back and have a look at it. But just to look how far off line he was when the front tucked. Yeah, it okay. looked like he was. Uh, there was something taking him out there that was not quite within his own control. Okay, but Fair. anyway, yeah. Well, Ben Yaya would totally agree with you. Moving on. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, Marquez was on pole. Uh, but Miller pipped him. But I thought Miller was going to pip him. I should say, but Miller couldn't. He still Marquez still had pole. Then Pecco, who did not have a very good qualifying, he was still kind of off, if you will, suddenly just puts it together at the end. And is like, whoa, can he? It's going to take an absolutely blinding fourth sector to do it. And Pecco did. That put Pecco on pole, followed by Marquez in the middle. Marini, who came out of the Q1, would be third. And then it was Miller, Martin, and Vinales, because Vinales tumbled down to sixth spot. So that was a pretty crazy happening qualifying and i guess one of the things we should maybe talk about in news is marquez is on this kalex frame which if you thought he wasn't going to be on that kalex frame i think you're crazy because for whatever reason whatever brottle says about a motorcycle mark marquez believes and just takes it as the gospel and away we go which now you gotta wonder like if i'm alex Renz or if i'm juan mir given the number of times juan mir was on the ground this weekend with the honda you want a kalex chassis too right Mm. or you at least want to try at it because apparently I, this is where i don't know it's like is the chat is that chassis that much better that at least mark has feel so he knows what the front end is doing so he can ride harder because let's face it marquez in the race is riding way deep on the brakes i'm not giving anything away with that one but you couldn't you uh, mir can't rins can't and those are hrc chassis so I think Mir was on the Calyx as well. For the they weekend. had a second Calyx. I think so. I, think I so, didn't. Yeah. I thought they had the one. And if there's two, it would have been Mark's backup bike. No, I, I was listening to one of the other really? podcasts earlier, and, and Mark had more than one uh, for himself. And I'm pretty sure Mir had the Calyx as well. So Honda, I okay. mean, uh, let's, let's give them a, a bit of an applause here. They are doing what they need to do and biting the bullet and doing something radically different and doing it in public because they basically mm. got no other choice at the moment that's i mean I, i'm i'm not going to disagree i'm not going to say that that's not true okay because i don't have the answer but given the crashes mir had they're very similar to what he had when he's racing the hrc frame i think mir's so, head huh. is completely gone at this point <laughs> him and quattro need to go see the same therapist they both need to lay down in a dark room and take a nap mir's in precisely uh, the same position that for example, Paul Espargo was for the last two years on the Honda. He just can't not crash now. And I, I think you almost kind of go out expecting to have a crash. It was yeah. interesting for me that Marquez on Saturday was absolutely supreme, but he did a lot of crashing on the Friday. So he kind of found the limit. And that this is what the stellar ones do, isn't it, Jim? They yeah. go out, 
they l understand where that point is by going over it not deliberately but they will learn from that because mark had a couple of quite big crashes one particularly big crash on the friday and okay back to his antics on the sunday but Saturday, he looked really, really strong and it was looking promising, wasn't it? And I guess you have to put a lot of that down to that new chassis. Although it's clearly not going to solve all of their problems, but it's a step. So let's talk about the sprint and then let's talk. Yeah. Let's go back to this chassis thing again after yeah. that. So we go to the sprint that afternoon. They line them up. Benyaya got the whole shot. Martin's there. Miller's right behind him. Marini. Marquez gets shuffled backwards. He, the Honda does not have a good whole shot device slash algorithm to get the bike off the line. The Ducatis and KTMs are missiles off the line. Yeah. Marquez just got swallow, swallowed up and all of that. Miller would fall off at the museum corner. He was trying to get around um he was trying to get around Marini at that point and totally had lost it. Uh Martin would lead uh over Benyaya and Marquez and Bender would race his way forward. Uh Martin got by and you how can I put this Martin got by and opened up a gap of some one and a half seconds because Marquez kind of was a roadblock to Bender. And Bender apparently having said he was afraid to pull any move in RF, wasn't going to pull any move here and risk a penalty in the main race to have a uh, long lap penalty in there, long lap of inconvenience. But Bender finally got the go, got by and Benyaya was there as well. Then Mark, uh, got back by Benyaya. They start swap back and forth a little bit. Martin is now gone. He's way up the road. And you still got this fight over second between Benyaya and Marini. Or sorry, the battle for third between Marquez, Benyaya, and Marini is, is awesome. They were kind of going back and forth. That was where the action was. And they did concentrate on that because the front was pretty much decided by that point. But Marini did eventually get by Marquez. Uh, it ended up with Martin winning, Bender being second, Benyaya was third, Luca Marini, then you had Marquez and Zarco. There were six people in that race that had track limits warnings. Six, I counted it. Six different riders had track limits warnings in a 12 or 13 lap race. Not a push. I suppose that's the nature of the sprint, isn't it? I, I guess you I guess that is. I guess you're just pushing or whatever there. But Bender made comments afterwards. He knew what they needed to change, and they were going to be much better for Sunday, he said. So let's go back to the Marquez thing and the chassis. From what from what it looked like to me after the sprint was that Marquez can't get off the corner. It doesn't accelerate. The Honda does not have the acceleration. Now, is that a grip issue? If it is, and that's exactly what it is, well, okay. Halex can redesign suspension links. They could redesign a swing arm. They could do a bunch of quick things to happen, especially in three weeks, to get that bike to use the maximize the grip. Are they just simply down on horsepower or down on acceleration to KTM and to um, Ducati? perhaps possibly right so you got to think that honda can't do anything with the motor because i understand the rules and i could be wrong here that motor's homologated and you can't change anything it's not like you can put a different motor and bring another motor for homologation in now no it's closed it's yeah. just closed you at the beginning of the year these are the what do they have rich six or something for the season i don't it's some small number yeah it's not a lot yeah it's not a lot six, so maybe. Yeah, so maybe eight. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But it does appear that a lot of the woes Marquez had early on with the HRC chassis have been corrected by the Kalex chassis. So now, is it a glowing... The question now is, again, this is all in the public witnessing this, as you so rightly pointed out, Rich. Does Honda have a motor problem, or do they have a 
fraction problem because the frame isn't exactly what they need yet. I think they've got both of those things and they've probably got a software problem in there as well. I mean, I don't think it's a new problem for them to have an engine that's got too much power that they can't get down because you see the bike pumping at the rear quite a lot quite often as well so again you would look to solve that through software and chassis so i think ponder's problem as we've discussed numerous times before is that they've got they got a list of problems to solve and you know they just got to slowly work through them uh, knowing that when they solve number three on the list it might then adversely affect number two or number four or number five even you know so you solve one problem and you're likely to create a slightly different problem Uh, but mark you can tell you you can see it plain as day that he's all of his work is on the brakes still mm-hmm. and that's where he had a couple of crashes over the course of the well three i think sort of front endy crashes over the course of the weekend for that very reason and all of johan mir's crashes are front end crashes as well he just doesn't have quite the cat like reflexes perhaps that mark marquez has we can get into a debate another time about yeah. whether mir and marquez are comparable in terms of their mm-hmm. skill and experience and stuff i mean okay people have different opinions on that but yeah Mark is doing wonders again. Mm. For me, I just thought it was interesting that a first race weekend with a new chassis and Marquez is fifth in the sprint and qualifies second. Yeah. On, I think we could all agree, a very front end heavy feel racetrack that Le Mans is. Yeah. But I was, I was, yes, it wasn't wet. It wasn't cold. <laughs> no, no, no. It was a, it was a nice weekend, you know, in terms of climatic kind of consideration so there was no curveball introduced that favored you know or, or masked a problem for that reason the only thing i would add really is that it doesn't really solve honda's problem because they're still back to having only one person that can ride the bike let's say consistently and i may be saying consistently is not quite correct with mark because one thing he hasn't been able to be for <laughs> a couple of years is consistent because of injuries and stuff but give him a sniff and he's there and it was you know, I wrote down on my notes, you know, the only Japanese bike in Q2 was Mark Marquez on the Honda. Gary. All the other Hondas were out, as were both Yamahas. So Honda are going to make progress, but are they going to land themselves back in the same problem that they've been in for so long, which is, yeah, they've got one person that can ride the bike, but once he's gone somewhere else or retired or injured, where does it leave them? Anyway, they've got to make progress somewhere, and at least, you know, they had a better weekend in that respect. Yep, I... Not like Mark was smiling wide, but he definitely had a more happy Mark Marquez face. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, let's go to Sunday's action and start with the Moto3 race. So let's talk just quickly about what came out of qualifying. Sasaki would be on pole. Marrera would go second. Helgardo third. I mean, qualifying was really kind of basic for Moto3. Um, Then Anchi was fourth. Mino and Ortolo was sixth. So there's the guys on the front two rows. It's kind of where you concentrate. You figure whoever's going to win is going to come out of that group maybe somebody off the third row which was Masia Artigas and uh Fanate but we should see what's going on in it now in the race and I'll ask you this Rich well no I'll do that remind me I have a question for you after this okay. right after the race so basically Sasaki got out first with Holgado Holgado basically went by at the beginning of the second lap maybe and he went Holgado went to the front from that point, it was a very interesting Moto3 race and the fact that Hargado led every lap from there to the end. Hargado was not passed to the end till the, you know, from that point to the end. I we thought that was phenomenal. Need to wheel on a Harry Lloyd to tell us when the last time a Moto3 race happened where the lead didn't change. It, I, yeah, exactly. Or Martin Reigns or somebody, somebody will know. Somebody, because that, that was an incredible feat. 
Yeah, like hen's teeth. That, isn't it? that is a rare. rare. <laughs> it's very, very rare. Basically, you you had the Sasaki, Anchu, Marrera, Ortola, and Masia problem was that was the race. It was those guys because Helgardo just held on to it. I mean, Sasaki kind of probed a little bit here and there, but he wasn't going to go by for certain. Mino fell off. He was down. Uh, or, Ortola was riding in fourth by about halfway. You had an eight rider group, uh, roughly ha- roughly halfway in with um, with the with the, uh, Artigas and Yamanaka having joined the original front six. Um, Ogden had a high side of turn seven, threw himself to the moon and was out. That was a pretty nasty little high side. Mm. Uh, back end just came around on him. It was really bizarre how that one. I don't know if the curb played any on that one or not. I'm not 100. percent yeah, we didn't really get to see a lot of what was going on. And the Hondas are in all sorts of bother, by and large, this year, aren't they? With the mm, yeah. exception of Masia, perhaps on the Leopard. But, and Suzuki did his usual thing of being completely AWOL this weekend. So, yeah, you don't really want to be on anything other than a KTM at the minute, do you? You don't, yeah. With eight to go, Anshu, I thought, was on for a podium. But uh, Masia did get by him a couple laps later. And then I thought, okay, well, where's Art? Is Art is Artola going to be the man to go three peat here? Because he put a charge on through it because it it was it was Holgardo, Masia, Sasaka, Sasaki, and then Artola in there. But it sorted itself back out to where Holgardo would win, Sasaki would be second, Masia would take a podium, and then Artola would be fourth. It's in there. That was the race as it as it held out. It was great for Holgardo because he's got arm pump issues. So in the three-week break, a lot of people suspect him to go under the knife to get that fixed in there as well. So be good to see. I don't really know if anybody has really reached out and decided to grab this championship yet, Rich. But uh, let's talk championship points after we after uh, we talk a little bit more about the race. So interesting thing that I – is there anything you'd like to say before I ask you this interesting question that I have? Well, only the, the most extraordinary thing I think I've probably ever said in my life, was, which was it was a – modestly boring moto three race which is not something that yeah. we say as mm-hmm. a rule but i think um I, in fact i'd written it in my notes I, I wrote a race of cat and mouse and literally 30 seconds later matt burt on the dawn of feet said exactly <laughs> the same thing it's like nobody really wanted to sort of take it on almost and so as you say holgado didn't have an easy time out the front by any stretch of the imagination but it wasn't really having to fend off you know masses of attacks was he so I, I only have one sort of overarching thought going out of this, so I'll leave you to sort of give your rest of your comments and your question then. So did you take note of the front brake covers that were on the KTMs? No. Can't say They're running, they are running, KTMs were running covers over the front discs. Oh, I hadn't spotted and that. If in, from, from a head-on shot, it appeared as though that they sort of you know wrapped around the disc and then wrapped around the fork. So I guess like a combination brake cover slash fork guard, if you will. But as it came by, they flicked out a little microscopic, just a little bit. They flipped out, which to me indicates that they are either trying to channel air to the radiator or they're trying to move air around the bike a little bit like an arrow effect. Because I also took note, as soon as I had noticed that, I also took note, like, whoa, the solid wheels are missing that they used to have on the back. They're now gone. Now, I don't know if that's been legislated out. I think they've been outlawed. Yeah, I, I, they may have been. If it is, I didn't know that. But it just dawned on me with the front brakes that they're there. I, I mean, I know they're steel brakes. The ferrous materials guaranteed on those bikes. They're not carbon. Carbon bikes, okay, I can understand you running a cover over it. You're trying to keep the heat in the brake. But a Moto3 bike? Keep the heat in it? I don't 
I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting that there was brake mm. covers on the bikes. Well, just... I'd be interested to know if anybody has a bit more insight than we do on this, because, you know, I, aerodynamic devices in Moto3 and Moto2, for that matter, are expressly forbidden in the mm-hmm. rules. But people push the rules to find where the gaps are, don't they? So it could yeah. well be that they're, yeah, maybe saying, oh, we need to keep the brakes a bit warmer. Because, you know, you might say, well, France, you would have expected it to be a bit cooler because it often is. You know, it's like the old air scoop thing from a few years ago in, in terms of what it was yeah. actually doing, but what people said it was for. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think it's something to watch. Just keep your eye on. So yeah. that's, that was my interesting little take from Moto3. I guess because I was so bored because there's no passing. I had to focus on the bikes. More. Yeah, it was a, a bit of a humdrum affair. No, so I mean, my only comment really was just sort of chops to Danny Holgado, really. Not so much for winning, although, of course, he deserves all the credit in the world for that. But for the guy that was effectively demoted from the IO team down to Tech 3, which is not to say that the Tech 3 team is inferior particularly, but I think it's reasonably well accepted that the IO squad is the sort of de facto factory team, semi-factory team, let's call it. So It's uh, equivalent to Honda's Leopard team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think that's about right. Yeah, so... Given what that would have done to the mindset of many a young, and I don't know how old Danny Holgado is, but let's speculate he's probably 18, 17 maybe. He's not old uh, in Moto3 terms, certainly not old. Yeah, fair play to him. I mean, he's really taken the championship by the scruff of the Mm. neck, isn't he? And a lot of people would have either had a massive sulk on or it would have just unraveled uh, given the fact that he'd been sort of moved aside for... The other people that have gone into, uh, you know, uh, Jose Maria Raiden. Who's the other IO team rider now? Oh, it's Dennis Onchu, isn't it? So, Onchu, yeah. uh, and Dennis Onchu, you must wonder, must be licking his wounds a little bit, seeing the bike he used to ride, or one of them, winning races consistently out front. So, yeah, interesting kind yeah. of what's going on there. Yep. I wonder if Onchu is just, like, going to, if he moved to a Moto2 bike, if he would just win. Is it the size thing, or does he just need to be... Is a bigger bike going to help him or not? I don't know. I mean, because if you look at he, Anchu's a big kid. I'm not saying he's not, but if you watch the race, Anchu can get completely behind the screen mm. of the bike, right? Sasaki doesn't. Sasaki's helmet is above the screen. And so, I mean, his, mm. I'm not trying to get down on Anchu saying, well, my, my bike's slow because I'm bigger, but Quattararo was a nothing in Moto 3, right? He was the next coming, didn't do anything. Kind of Anchu's got the same flair, right? So it's sort of like, he may do nothing in Moto2 and suddenly be like a Moto3 genius or, or MotoGP genius. Sorry, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. But I do think Hargado has definitely put his stamp on the championship. He leads on 84 points. He is 21 ahead of Ortola. Now, if his arm pump problem doesn't reappear or he gets the surgery to correct the arm pump and can ride in Magello in three weeks' time, or yeah, Magello in three weeks' time, um, it could be that Hargado runs off with this championship. I do not know. But uh, Masia and uh, Ortola are dead, even at 63 points apiece. Marrera is next, then uh, uh, Chevy Artigas, Sasaki, Suzuki, Alonso, Rueda, and Anshu are your top 10 in championship points. In I suppose, Jim, we should point out that Marrera went down, didn't he? So Yes, he did. I did not say that. He didn't finish yes. the race, which is slightly unusual for him, because, I mean, he's not been a crasher up until now. And just one little kind of uh, comedy tidbit. Uh, I'm pretty sure that in his exuberant chest pumping or pumping himself, Holgado set his airbag off as he went over the line, which is something we've seen a few times before with various riders. It always cracks me up when they inadvertently do that. So, yeah, going around waving at the crowd, looking like the Michelin man for a 
<laughs> 30 seconds or so. He was going for that zipper real fast, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, find the, couldn't find the end of that zipper because once he blew out, he wanted to get that relief and yeah. get that release. <laughs> yeah, because it must put quite a bit of pressure on the, I on think the it would. Upper, it, upper part of the torso, yeah. I would think so. Sure would. All right, with that, let's move to Moto2. Yeah. Very quickly, QP1, one thing I want to say, Sean Dillon Kelly just missed out by 28 hundredths of a second of going into the uh, second qualifying session. So a markedly improved Sean Dillon Kelly, maybe. I'm hoping, fingers crossed here, so we can have an American get, at least get the second qualifying. Let's work our way up the grid. Oh, yeah, I think he's made a step. I do. I think Not he's top 10 there. yet, but he's getting there. He's getting yeah. there. I just, how long are they going to wait for him to mature is the question I have. Yeah, I don't know. True. That's not for me to, I'm not the guy in charge, so I'm not going to speculate. I'm just hoping he it keeps improving and keeps his ride. Yeah. Uh, in the second Moto2 qualifying session, it was like Acosta, Arbolino, Dixon, and Lowe's all trying to get in there. Uh, Lowe's smashed the lap record to take pole. It was a massive uh, thing to see. It was great. Uh, Vietti with a absolutely Mark Marquez would be proud safe at turn three it yeah. was gone <laughs> on the elbow and it was literally the wheels almost were like off the ground he was so far leaned over and somehow put it back up on it it was amazing if you haven't seen it go watch it second qualifying from the Mons moto too amazing uh tulevic crashed dixon crashed connect crashed which caused a red flag so nobody was able to go any faster at the end because of connect's crash uh, so then it was it finished off with in the qualifying. Lowe's pole, Lopez was second, Arbolino slacked, and Acosta would have to start fifth because he was on a fairly hot lap. I don't think he would have taken pole from Sam, though that was a great lap, but he was sort of got burned by the red flag. So that's what happened there, yep. where Acosta was. Vietti, Chantra, Dixon, uh, and Gonzalez are your front three rows of riders. Quickly there. Uh, the race, the Moto2 race. Wow, this was... A little bit interesting. Uh, Arbolino got a great start. Lopez was right there with them. They all got by Lowe's, who kind of went backwards at the start. Then Acosta was fourth. Lowe's then went down in the Dunlap chicane on what started the second lap of the race. The front just went away, and he was lucky that he did that. He was not collected by anybody else or collected anybody else as he went into the gravel trap. As they then went out of Dunlap, you go over the hill to, that's three, four, five. As you're doing six, I think five and six, there was the massive, massive crash out of La Chapelle. It was Aranis, Kinnett, and Gonzalez crash. It started as Aranis' crash. He crashed on the on the exit. He yeah. lost the back, I think, for a second. He high-sided himself off. Or did he low-side out of it? I think he low-sided out of it. He low-sided out of it. Yeah. He lost the back low-sided out of that. Yes, because the back end broke away, and then he went down on the low yeah. side. However, neither Pinet nor Gonzalez could avoid the bike, and they were both ejected as they flung themselves over, cartwheeling all the way to the firewall. Again, I said this at her ref. I'll say it again. All the bikes are making it across the gravel traps, and we're getting to where riders and bikes are getting dangerously close to walls tire barriers and things that need to have an airbag in front of them yeah there was a nasty incident that it was a very nasty incident and now i'm going to rant a little bit a red flag was thrown i know to what stop you're gonna say. the race mm -hmm. what am i gonna say no no you you have your run okay all right 
So that created a red flag. However, we saw from the camera that Kinnett was in some distress to which he could not remove himself from the gravel trap. The red flag never came out till the leaders were in turn five. That's bull. I cannot and will not accept that you thought they were going to remove all those bikes, trash, and people out of the gravel trap on a shortish circuit. Le Mans is short. Let's be fair. Yeah, pretty short. Yeah. I was disgusted that a red flag was not thrown immediately after three riders tumbled into the gravel trap. I would have been at least a red flag displayed at start finish to as the leaders came through that they would then stop. That call came way too late for someone who had a, the need of a medical team to help him and assist him. Completely, uh, I am livid about that one, and I will be for some time. Just looking at my notes now, and I wrote scandalous. Ooh, yeah, you're British. You have really good words. They threw the red on a live track past the incident, and as you said, they had ample opportunity to oh. get that red flag out 20, 30 seconds earlier. So they put everybody else at you know, really bad yeah. danger there, uh, particularly people that couldn't get, well, Canet, who could not move out of the way, because clearly, I don't know what his injury was, but it looked as if he damaged his foot or his ankle or something. Something to that effect where he was unable to be moved. I mean, if I recall, before the red flag came out, Canet had his helmet off and they were tending to him while he That's was right. sitting upright in the gravel, in yeah. the gravel trap. And we yeah. still don't have a red flag. Okay. To me, if people fell there, there's a chance there could have been oil or some other substance on the track that caused Aranus to crash to begin with, or could have been left from Aranus's bike or the other bikes that went across there. You could easily have put somebody else down and gone into that same exact impact zone, harmed a corner worker, harmed Kinnett, or harmed themselves as a result of that. I'm sorry, that was just despicable. Yeah. No, I was pretty sure I knew what you were going to rant about. <laughs> You know, there's no situation for me really where that late decision by race direction could be sort of passed off as, oh, well, it's just one of those things. But it's particularly egregious to me when they're handing out penalties to riders for the most tiniest little infringements on safety grounds. You know, it's like, come on, guys, you need to mark your own homework a, a little bit less on this one, because th that was a poor call. And we've seen it before. I mean, OK, we don't need to go sort of trotting through all of them. But one that springs to mind would be uh, Jorge Navarro at uh, Phillip Island last year, where he, Two laps, they went past a live yep. accident scene uh, and never even threw a red flag there. They're lucky he didn't, his femur didn't cut his femoral artery. Yeah. If he did, he'd have bled to death. Yeah, it was terrible. So yeah, really, really, really poor that was. <laughs> well, yep, it was poor. I will give you that. Well, this was now interesting was, hey, we now, those two laps don't exist in the book. So everyone could restart if you could get your bike back to the pits. Well, Lowe's bike is back to the pits, and then Lowe's is flying up on a skater with his helmet and stuff. And the mad dash was on by uh, the Mark VDS team to put Lowe's bike back together again. And there was going to be a quick restart, and it was only about, what was it, four and a half minutes of time that they had to put the bike back together again? And boy, I tell you, props to Simon Crafer. He was right there. He's staring he's, I don't think they can do it, guys. They, <laughs> they got to go through the throttle and they've got, they, there's all these things that are broke. Body work's going to be easy, but they've got to clean this and this, you know, and Simon's going through the whole list. He's standing right there. And I mean, that was drama. Like I'm on the edge of my seat. Cause I'm like, I want these guys to fix it. I really do. You know, I don't want anything to happen to Lowe's. I really want the bike fixed. And he's, and then, you know, they keep coming back to Simon. Simon's like, well, they actually have like preset 
handlebars and preset throttle attached and they're they're on now you know this play-by-play of this energy this crew and uh, uh arbolino's guys are over helping to put Lowe's bike back together again and what was really super cool and i think this happens all the time with with, with pit crews and teams that you know race cars and bikes whatever there's no ever look of panic when the mechanics are on it it is this choreo choreographed chaos that you're watching the clock and ticking down these guys are just they're just doing their thing it's just yeah. methodical and they just put that they put it together Lowe's missed getting out because you have one minute when the pit lane opens in a quick restart to get out of there. Lowe's missed it by about three seconds. Was- if there hadn't have been a pit speed pit speed lane, Lowe's would have been out there. Agonizing. It was t- I oh my gosh. I was just I felt so horrible for Sam. And I felt bad for the guys, the crew. They did. I, I hope Sam took those guys out to dinner or something because those guys <laughs> yeah. they pulled off what was had to be close to a miracle, be to be honest. It was I I initially thought like Simon, I don't know if we can do this in four and a half minutes. And by golly, they did. So. I don't want to sort of do too much in the way of trash talk, but the race to get Sam Lowe's bike back together was more interesting and more exciting than the Moto Three race. I yes, <laughs> it was. I will not I will not I will not uh not argue with you there on that. Well, that machine, uh, watching those guys working. It was fantastic. Superb. It's like I I don't know. It reminds me of like uh Audi at Le Mans with their R fifteen, R tens and stuff. They could, they were like changing whole transmissions and stuff, and it's just choreotic, choreographed chaos. And you're just yeah. like, did they just do that in like six minutes? <laughs> anyway, and it's so cool the way they've got sort of pre-assemblies yeah. ready to neat. go. Yeah. You know, like and you see, particularly see this sort of thing at Le Mans, as you say, Jim, in the 24-hour race. You know, they have these big sort of assemblies just ready to sort of bolt on almost. It's uh, yeah. that's like the most untechnical way of saying it, but yeah, yeah, very very impressive to watch that. But it was cool that Mark VDS had gone through that, and they have spare set. And whatnot. I mean, that, yeah. that takes a lot of time to do all that, but they did. I mean, it goes to show you the level of thought and attention to detail that Mark VDS puts into their racing team, Yeah, which I think is pretty damn cool. And we got to see it. I don't know, Jim, I'm not sure about the rules on this. If Sam had made it out before the pit lane closed, would he have been able to take up his original grid slot? I'm assuming he yes. would because it was a new race, yes. wasn't it? The so... race had never happened. So literally yeah, he okay. would have been able to go to pole position. If you notice Lowe's position on the grid was missing. Right. Okay. And so were the other riders' positions were missing as well. They were they're not missing. Sorry, they're empty. <laughs> yeah. Wrong word. They were yeah. empty. So hence Sam t- did the warm up lap, but I had to join at the back of the field. Yes. For the for the grid. Yeah. Right. Okay. He was able then to take off, do the warm up lap, report to the back of the grid, and he started. Lowe's would start dead last now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the race was then shortened from its original twenty two laps to fourteen laps due to the red flag and time constraints. Because, you know, we got to have national anthems and rider ride, rider rides around. And I just, whatever. I'm just so full of that. I just, what's not? Sorry. Edit that out. <laughs> we should do that one, Rich. Anyway, uh, they restarted. Arbolino got out front. Lopez was right behind him. Then Acosta was third with Slatch and Vietti and Aldiger. Now, Acosta got by Lopez, and then he almost high-sided in what was almost the exact same spot that Arenas had fallen Arenas. off in. Almost the same spot because Arenas and him are actually teammates at IO on Moto2 bike. So the teammates almost crashed in the exact same spot again. But <laughs> cat-like reflexes of Acosta winds up him saving it. Now, it's Arbolito versus Acosta. They're kind of dropping away from Slatch and Lopez. And you're waiting. You've got uh, four laps left in the race, roughly, something close to that. And you're going on thinking, okay, it's going to be this Arbolino-Acosta thing. Acosta was catching 
it's going to go down to the wire. It's going to be cat and mouse again. We're we're thinking like cue the Jaws music. This is kind of like uh, Coda again. And then down goes Acosta, loses the front, turn seven. That was a shame that that happened. I think we got robbed of what could have been a really outstanding moto yeah. two race on two accounts. One, Sam Lowe's didn't get to start on, from pole position, okay? Because he missed it by three seconds of getting out in time to be able to take that pole position. And we had Acosta fall as well. So that allowed that allowed Arbelina to cruise to the victory, who now is 25 points ahead of Acosta because he scored points and Acosta didn't. And we then had a little bit of a battle with, with Outiger, and he wound up with Outiger and, and Lopez and everybody. But Outiger got a long lap penalty that he had to take for track limits. But it turned out that Arbelina would win, Salach would be second, Lopez on the podium, Vietti, then Dixon and um, Chantra. Lowe's got a points finish in 15th. He nipped Sean Dillon Kelly for that final point, which I was gutted, but I was so happy Sam at least got something out of it. Yeah. It must be said, Jim, that we're lamenting the poor result in the end for Sam Lowe's. But, I mean, he did crash in the first race, and he was kind of lucky, inverted commas, that that other crash happened that allowed him to get the bike back and and out to take part in the restart. So it's typical sort of Sam Lowe's, you know, Perez. It's like walking on water, like this, you know, the second coming. Nobody could touch him, and pulled out that all-time lap record for pole on the Saturday. But you just always have that feeling, uh, maybe he'll crash this race. And lo and behold, second lap. I mean, we didn't really talk about his crash, but it just looked to me like he went way too hot. Was going to T-bone his teammate, but cut the front anyway, and almost did take his teammate out. Luckily, the bike didn't collect our Bellino. So yeah, it's, it's a shame really because Sam is so fast, but. He just crashes a bit too often, doesn't he, I'm afraid, to really mount a title challenge. Frustrating. But nobody yeah. will be more frustrated than him, I'm sure, in his team. But at least he got a point, as you say, albeit at the expense of Sean Dillon Kelly. But well, I mean, I just thought the, the mechanics did such a great job to at least come on with a point was... Oh, yeah, they did. ...for them. Yeah, yeah, get, Maybe not for Sam so much, but for them. Yeah. So the championship after this, when we get done with this, the standings, Arbolino is on 99 points at Costa, as I said, 25 points behind. Alonso is now third in... Uh, I don't want to call it distant, but he's 13 points ahead. I do think that this championship is between Arbelino and Acosta already. I think that's determined. It's going to be like a Remy Gardner, Augusto Fernandez fight to the end. If, if Raul Fernandez. That's right? it. <laughs> and that's why Rich is the best color man in the business. Because he likes to correct me when I get my Fernandez is confused. There are a lot of them, to be fair to you. There are a lot of them, but I'm sorry. I apologize. I did get it out of whack there. But I... That's where uh, the rest of the top 10, just as Salach, Kenneth, Dixon, Lowe's, Chantra, Vietti, and Audiger. So let us, anything else, Rich, before we go to the MotoGP race to finish the weekend off? No, I mean, we need to get to MotoGP, but all I'll say in Moto2 is um, very, very impressive Philip Salach, you know, really having the, the best year of his career in the MotoGP paddock. I don't really remember him in Moto3 particularly, but he's, yeah, he's doing really well, isn't he, on that Grassini bike? Yeah. But it's a, it's a two-horse race. I, mean, oh, yeah. I think that's clear. I mean, Kinect's disappearing without Trace and he's crashing again. He may be not declared fit to ride, depending on what's wrong with his mm. ankle, foot. Possibly. If it's bones broken in his foot, three weeks, maybe tough out the pain. If it's an ankle thing where it's like ligaments and tendons, maybe, maybe not, because I don't remember which foot it was. I was thinking it was his left. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. If it's his left, that's a little trickier because that's shifting. Yeah. I mean, Acosta, although he crashed, which was unfortunate for the race from our point of view watching it, 
I mean, obviously he's a title favourite this year, but Arbolino is kind of like dangerously consistent. He doesn't crash very much, Tony Arbolino. So whereas you can actually lose your Dixons, you know, the other people that we thought might put up some good performances and they have all they will this season. But we know who the two front runners are now. I think it's clear. Yep. You're a brave man if you bet that Acosta's not going to put like three or four wins in a row together. Oh, he could go on a run. Oh, yeah. easily. Yeah, easily. And of all the tracks that we go to, I think this is Acosta's weakest track because he's crashed here in Moto3, crashed on the Moto2 bikes last year there. He definitely, well, let's put it this way. Le Mans is not on his Christmas card list of racetracks, right? No. So. And we saw him having a lot of front-end crashes in his first season in Moto2, and Le Mans is a completely front-end track. So if, perhaps there is still a tiny weakness there for Acosta with the front end of the bike. Um, and if anyone's going to expose it, it, it is Le Mans. It would be sort of pretty high up the list for that. Yep. So, yeah, but Arbolino is kind of, he's very, very underrated. And I, as, yeah. as I've said on the show, I, I'm pretty sure he's probably already signed and sealed for MotoGP next year. So he's going to be hard to on beat. On a what? Uh, Grassini. I think he'll replace Digi Antonio. Yeah, I think that rumor is pretty much out there right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you never know. He might get the Husky ride with <laughs> Aspar. Could be. I, I think that's happening. I really do. I hope I, so. You, yeah. you said it. I think it. If I'm KTM, I mean, think about how many people would be knocking on your door to ride that bike, given what it's looked like so far. Yeah. Maybe one Mr. M. Marquez. Stranger things have He looked good, right? <laughs> I bet there's mad discussions going on behind the scenes. With oh, there's got it. I, this, that's the part that just gets me. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's move to MotoGP. Yeah. And get done here with the MotoGP race. So we lined them all back up again on Sunday to do this all again. And Marquez got a whole shot. He's followed by Miller. He capped Marini there. And Ben Yaya, Martin fell way back. And then Bezecchi. Bender was wide, which he actually got bumped out by one Alex Marquez. Correct? Yes. To which now Alex Marquez has a long lap penalty at the next race. Correct? I'm pretty sure that's correct. Yeah, which he protested vehemently against, quite rightly yeah. so. And then was denied. And denied. And I'm like, what are these people watching? Like that was if that was the cleanest of all bumps. It, if if we're gonna go down this path of like if we're looking at like breaking data and and like eighteen thousand different cameras and we're gonna go through the high speed camera and go frame by frame by frame, just like, oh he broke a millisecond too late. You can't judge a millisecond on a racetrack, people. This is getting up. This is, we've said it before, and I'm just going to leave it this. This is absurd. Yeah. I think Alex Marquez's contention was, and I fully would expect this to be correct. And I think he said, because I haven't watched it back, I'm pretty sure he said Zarco, for whatever reason, had to break a bit harder than would be expected. So that kind of sat Alex up as a reaction to that. And that was what caused the chain reaction. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that he got the penalty because it, really affected Binder's race, which it did. I mean, it sent Binder out way wide, but I don't think Brad Binder would have complained about it or indeed did complain about it because that's just not the kind of guy that he is. He just gets his head down and gets on with it. But although I can't remember all the detail, again, going back to Jerez, where you had Morbidelli and Quattrara involved in sort of what you might argue were similar-ish kind of pinch point incidents on the first lap of a race, and they got completely different penalties. So, ah, there we are again. Anyway, let's, let's move on, because yes. we'll just bitch and moan about penalties. Oh, yeah, we will. Vinales had moved his way up to fifth. Uh, he was he was there. 
him and Benyala were together. Then we get into the 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 Pecco and Vin, in, in Vinyala's thing. Now Vinyala's went by. I do think you could say that when Vinyala's passed Pecco, it was a bit of a aggressive move. Fair, and that's okay. I'm I'm good with aggressive. It was good. The Stewarts were okay with it. I think Pecco was eh, a bit shuffed by it. But then Pecco tried to come back on his alternate line that he runs through uh, turn through turn twelve, and they come together as they come out of that turn. Now coming out of that turn, Vinyas is not going to see Benyaya on that line because your focus as a racer is to the next brake marker up the track, and to do that, you would have to be looking slightly to your left in your helmet, and you hang over the bike so far nowadays that you can't see anything to your right. It so happens that Benyaya, with the excellent grip and acceleration of the Ducati, is now occupying the exact same space that Vinyalas is now going to run into. The two bang together, and then they sort of come together one more time. Well, that was because the impact, first impact, upset Vinyalas' bike so bad that he kind of got hooked with Benyaya's shoulder, handlebar, or something in that area. Yeah. And it lifted the back end off the ground. It came back down. It was squirrely. Vinales has to correct, and they touch one more time. That impact puts Vinyaya down. They both tumble off into the gravel trap. Now, Vinales is hot about this because he Vinyaya is still on the ground laying the trap, and here comes Maverick <laughs> right to him, like with the whole, what the heck are you doing arm motions as those two descend to have a conversation about who was right and who was wrong. Much like you would say it was handbags at dawn, which I kind of rude to of Mar of Vinales to have actually did what he did. However, emotions rule, right? You're Italians, you're hot blooded, right? I get it. But the point that kind of got to me, and I really thought they were gonna get fined for this, was the fact that he started to push on Benyaya when Benyaya was laying in the gravel trap. Mm. Now, if Benyaya was had stood up, walked to the tires as Vinales was and then they wanted to have their own little punch up afterwards and it's still not cool but not maybe finable you know in my mind at that point right because it was that was more behind I won't say closed doors but the discussion could have happened differently than it did right it was in the gravel trap impact zone that whole nine yards of whatnot and then you've got now you're putting yourself back in danger because you're walking towards a hot track where your motorcycle wasn't there Vinay is not able to even try to get up or analyze whether he has broken anything or whatever and you now got corner workers that are trying to separate the two of them. So I thought for sure there'd been a penalty for at least their altercation at the end. However, it was seen that they actually all rode back on the same moped together. Yeah. And everything was a okay. And let's yeah. applaud race direction for not putting sanctions on them for either the incident on the track or the incident off the track. But it does rather beg the question why that gets uh, let off and other things that you would argue are far less well, well, yeah, I don't know. It's just so confusing. That's clickbait, right? How many people are going to watch that over and over again, right? So it's like, you know, for here in the States, I'll give you an example of what something like that can do for you. It's the very first time. I think it's, I don't, I may not have the year right here, people. So don't yell at me for this one. I think it was 1979. The Daytona 500 is being shown live on TV for the first time on CBS Sports. I think Buddy Baker and Donnie Allison come together. They get out of their stock cars and they start having a fist fight that was shown over and over again it was every picture on every newspaper and you cannot buy that kind of publicity and from that point forward everybody is sort of it launched nascar from being a deep south uh thing in the u.s to a whole country focused on that sport and maybe moto gp saw this one that way 
But regardless, I applaud race direction for not having penalized either rider in that scenario. Can I just say, Jim? Sure. Uh, it was particularly gr- uh, griev- <laughs> or grievous for me because some of what Maverick has got up to over recent seasons is easy to form a poor opinion of the guy. But uh, he, he's a, I like him on a bike. You know, he's good. And his weakness really is that he does, for me anyway, is that he doesn't get his elbows out often enough. And in Sunday's race, man, he was putting some moves in those early laps. I mean, but leading up to the Banyaya pass, which and the Banyaya pass was a tough one. But he pulled a few kind of pretty ruthless moves in front of that. And A, he got off the line all right and didn't drop, maybe drop one place, I think. But he had a good start, which is not normal for him or for the Aprilia. And then, yeah, he was really dishing it out. And I was thinking, blimey, he's got out of bed on the right side this morning. You know, he looks like a proper MotoGP rider all of a sudden. And then, you know, it was just an unfortunate racing incident. As as you said, I think your analysis a minute ago was spot on there, Jim. Probably Paco carries a bit more of the blame, but it was just one of those things. It's unfortunate. It's that kind of a corner. It kind of sucks people in. You know, Maverick had to make a tough pass to get the pass done because that is MotoGP 2023. You don't really get many easy passes. And so... And that corner has been tricky in the past for people. So it was just a great shame, I think, for Maverick to go out like that. Because I was almost thinking that with those first few laps and the way he was riding, you thought, hmm, this is looking like a podium or possibly even a potentially a win. Yeah. So it was a shame that we were robbed of that. They were very fast. And Vinales was robbed of an attempt at pole by via a technical grim. Yeah. So he, they had speed all weekend. So you really kind of felt for him. I did. Yeah. yeah. So just when we sort of got that whole scenario so sorted and whatnot, also next thing we get a cutaway. Here's Marini and Alex Marquez down, exiting the Dunlap chicane, and Alex Marquez is turned around backwards, facing oncoming traffic with a crap ton of bike motorcycles coming at him, and he is squarely on the line. And he's Marini's bike is actually spinning towards him, so he's got all this to judge, which thankfully he did. Eventually, we got the replay of what happened. Marini had lost the front and was trying to save it off the elbow a la Marquez, to which then he then completely lost that and completely crashed. Basecki was easily able to skate by the falling Marini by millimeters, but unfortunately, as he tried to save it, it just plowed back across the racing line. Alex Marquez had nowhere to go and was ejected from his Christina Ducati and again was facing this oncoming traffic. I mean, hands and knees sliding backwards, Facing oncoming traffic with a motorcycle, I was like, ooh. I mean, great job at Corner Workers. There was plenty of yellow flags waving immediately on that one. And you do have a little bit of a thing. You're going to probably notice the accident coming into the chicane off your peripheral because you're sort of glancing. You're, you're looking that way anyway to find your apex. So it would have given everybody a little bit of time to slightly check up, but it was still a scary instance. Because yeah. I'm always afraid it's not the guy in front who's going to hit you. It's the guy behind that guy. Because they are not, they can't see, they're inside it. So, yeah. yeah. And I'm not the first person to say this, but the Marini kind of non crash, because it wasn't really a crash until Alex Marquez contacted him, was horribly reminiscent of the Simoncelli thing where he kind of lost mm. it and then picked it up. But it, in doing that, it kind of veered him back into the traffic. And that's where, if, you know, if he just lost the front, he'd have slid off to the left, way out of harm's way, and probably nobody would have tangled with him. But because he kind of caught that slide, yeah, it caused the accident. Uh, I mean, it's a split second thing, and the instinct is to rescue it and get back up on, you know, two wheels, sunny side up again, which is what he did. It was just, as you say, Alex Marquez just didn't really have anywhere to go. So, 
Yeah, they sort of dodged a bit of a bullet with that one. Yep. If uh, if Alex Marquez appears on scene, maybe three or four seconds sooner, that might be very different. Yeah, but so, I mean, it's a dangerous sport. I mean, we all know it that. Is. But, and, yeah, they were just, but it was kind of, it was a nasty crash and looked terrible. But in a way, they were kind of lucky with the way it turned out because it could have been a hell of a lot worse, really. So yeah, lucky to get away with that one. From this point, Bezeki gets on a charge. So I guess he's spurred on by having gotten by the accident with his t- of his teammate. He actually forced his way past Mark Marquez and ran Mark Marquez wide. Uh, Martinez moved his way to second there and whatnot. But they race stewards then decided that, well, Bezeki's pass was a little too aggressive. You have to drop a position. Okay. So what's the difference between a long left penalty and drop a position here? Because I, is it, if, if you are overly ambitious, do you get a long left penalty? And if you're just simply aggressive, you get a drop one place? Like, I, I get, ah, cool. No idea, Jim. No idea at this point. Uh, it's just consistency, people. Consistency. That's, I'm not going to go down this path again. I promised myself I would. Well, you're about to come to Brad Binder oh, in a minute. Yeah, and and what happened now, to now. him? It's like, what the yeah. hell was all that about? <laughs> I agree. So... Well, where were we? We get past the we get past that part of it. Um, Bezeki drops a position. Of course, he goes right back past by Marquez again. It was just a formality, but it was like, wow, Miller's out front, Martin's there, and it's Bezeki. That's that's there. Bezeki then breezes by Miller and 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 has like a half a second lead there. Marquez is in second, and Bezeki winds up going by to lead Marquez right with him because uh, Miller had crashed again at that point, right? He had his second yeah. call the weekend, which left everybody there. Um, Bezeki is now just pulling away. And you're thinking, me, I'm thinking, like, in Formula 1, there's what they call, like, the DRS train or the Truly train, where you can't get by somebody because there's no way to get by them. I was thinking we might have the Mark Mark Pass train because Mark was sort of holding everybody up. There was people who were definitely faster than him, but Mark was riding and going way deep on the brakes. And it was, like, one of those things to me is, like, man, can you keep this up? But, you know, you kind of believe in Mark's skill that he's going to save it. Even if he did somehow maybe fold the front, he would still save it somehow. So that was going on because I'm thinking, well, Bender could have a podium because Bender had charged on here, but you didn't really know. And the other guy who's like really on the charge was Augusto Fernandez on the on the on the on the gas gas, the KTM clone. Right. So he suddenly appears in this and, and Zarco had showed up, too. Right. It was like as everybody else sort of fell away. We, we, I realized I really should reset what's going on here. So at nine laps to go, Bezeki's out front. Mark, Mark Marquez is second. Martin is third. Zarco's there. Augusta Fernandez. Then Alicia Sparger over there. Now, Marquez runs wide on the double rights of eight and nine. And then Bender receives a long lap penalty for a shortcut across the chicanes, which was, where is that at? Is that like eight, nine? No, not eight, nine. It's 10, yeah, 10 it's, 11. It's the it, corner before the Maverick and Paco. Right, a collision, isn't it? Yes. I, forget, I forget the name of the corner now. I uh, yeah, they all they use names. They use French names. I wish just in, I was I couldn't catch what turn that it was that they usually put up what turn on the feed as mm. this crash happened. So Bender gets, but Bender was behind uh, at that point. He was Bender was behind Marquez, correct? Either Marquez or Miller. I don't think Miller crashed at this Miller. point. It might, I think yeah. it was Miller, but uh, it doesn't yeah, matter. Miller, he... Miller has gone backwards in the pack. He has not yet. He hasn't crashed. Yeah. He hasn't hasn't crashed at this point. So he probably was Miller. But they decided that even though Bender took the shortcut and regained, he never gained a position. But they dictated that he did not drop enough time 
for having gone over. Now, admittedly, everybody was warned that if you shortcut this, you could get a time penalty if you didn't drop enough time. My question is, how do you know what's enough time? And honestly, no matter what Bender did, he had to straighten it up and ride back onto the track, rejoin safely. He lost some time regardless. It wasn't like he was right on his back fender and suddenly, whoa, guess what? He's still on his back fender, even having to take the shortcut. Well, make him drop a pl- Why not make him drop a place? Because the pack was pretty tight. Like if you made if Bezeki drop a place for Marquez, why well, can't Bender just drop a place? Again, we, there's no consistency to what it is. Just like whatever Freddie feels is what we're going to do. Well, I'm pretty sure oh, I heard or read, Jim, that the the discussion about the shortcut was that if you lost less than a second, mm. then you would get penalised. Now, I think in the event, Binder lost 0.8 of a second. Now, I mean, again, it's a little bit like the whole, yep. well, I'm one millimetre on the green on the outside of the track. So is that infringing track well technically yes it is and i suppose if you point to but you know as far as i'm concerned you know he he had to straight line it so he goes off track he loses time and he gets some dirt on his tires i think that's penalty enough i think so too but here we are Uh, i mean you know everything everything has to get a penalty Uh, apart from the apart from the race directions when they don't throw red flags but here's uh, i'm gonna rant sorry folks if you have a set of penalties and you say strictly this is if you don't do this it's gonna be a problem how do you, on a motorcycle, know you've dropped a second? Exactly. One second at a time. I don't know how you do that, okay? So, okay. But you apply the letter of the law to a situation that does not need the letter of the law applied because Bender was eight tenths back. That's close enough to a second. I'm sorry. I'll give you plus or minus a tenth or two each way. Perfect. Yet you take something that is like Bezeki and you say, oh, you got to drop one place. Well, that you bump Marquez wide. Previously, if somebody bumps somebody wide, it's a long lap penalty. Well, it's consistency. The same thing, the same penalty for doing the same injustice. Not like you're obviously got to stickle for track limits and you got to stickle for this chicane, but your, your other ones are just random as to what you decide you're going to do. I get it. The rule book says you can apply those penalties, but again, how, what, how do you race? Because you, if you try something, it's going to be judged overly aggressive or ambitious, and then you're going to get a long lap penalty, which is ruining your race. So would you rather take the, what is it, 20 points per second, or f- only get 12 points because you had to go through the long lap penalty? Well, mm-hmm. I'm going to take the 15. This is the monster they're creating, I'm it, afraid, it isn't is. it? It yeah. is. Yeah. And the genie's sort of out of the bottle on this one now, and it needs to be sort of put it back is. in and that right soon, really, because it's getting a bit out of hand, isn't it? Yeah, but unlike aerodynamics shape-shifting bikes and whole shot devices this one you can easily nip in the butt because you can as the referee decide this is exactly what we're going to do and show instances of these things on track and go from now on this is going to be this this is going to cause you to do this and this is dropping a lap and this is that and if you tell everybody that then you have to enforce it that way every single time and everybody's going to play to the same set of rules the movie i mean would you show up would you show up to a cricket game and suddenly decide at some point, yeah, we're going to be able to allow to use aluminum bats or a larger wicket, right? You wouldn't, you know, oh, well, this time I'm going to use this bat or I'm going to use that bat. You wouldn't do that or change balls in the middle of the match. Well, I believe, you know, a certain amount of the angst that had sort of worked its way into the discussion, let's say the public discussion by the time the races were all done on Sunday was that Freddie Spencer and the stewards sat with the riders I guess on the Thursday and sort of laid out, look, these are the sorts of things that happen and these are the penalties that will result. And I think there was a lot of ill feeling by the end of the weekend because those Somebody didn't hold results, up the bargain those results weren't consistently applied. You know, different things happened, you know. So yeah, 
as we keep saying, it's just it just spoils the racing because okay, you might say, well, Binder would have caught back up to Miller, and he probably I think he did catch back up to because Miller was hit straight into tire yeah. trouble and stuff. But yeah, but you know, he could have been further up the road, you know. But he had to take that stupid long lap penalty, which. Oh, by the way, it, which put him behind somebody called Fabio Quattararo. Yeah, he was actually in the race. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jim. true. He was. We didn't even mention that he crashed out of the sprint race, actually, which he no, did. No, he didn't. He because did. yeah. you would have been hard-pressed to know that he was even there or that a Yamaha was competing this weekend. You know, the most time he got on screen pretty much in the race on Sunday was precisely when Binder had to do the long lap and Quattararo did temporarily get in front of him. But other than that, I mean, it was a horror show for Yamaha. Top yep. to bottom, and Morbidelli was even worse. So, God, I mean, things are bad there, real bad. Yep, Miller was in tire trouble because he had a soft front, which wasn't lasting. He would go down with three laps to go. Marquez would crash with three laps to go at turn seven. Lost the front, which he did on the brakes, which was literally well, how deep he was riding all the time. And you had that. But Bezeki would win this race, take his second win, takes it in the dry, and what was a masterful ride. Martin would right into a podium in second. Zarco, his teammate, would be on the podium. So at the top, it's three Ducatis, but it's an independent team running 2022 bikes, and then an independent team running 2023s, and another 2023 bike. So yeah, I guess we need to slow those bikes down. (laughs) And then (laughs) Augusto Fernandez on the gas gas was fourth, which shows you the potential that the KTMs have if they get it right. Augusto may surprise here. Because they have been very complimentary about his methodical approach to what's been happening. Whatever the team has asked of him to try or do, he has done and responded to it. And I hope this is a I hope this is a a stepping stone to consistently seeing Augusto qualify in the second session, uh, go directly to Q two, and be at the front or be very close to the front at the end and be in this top fives consistently. I would love it. I mean, it's just going to make the racing that much better. We've been saying all year, Jim, that he's been doing a solid job. Well, this weekend yes. he did a spectacular, spectacular it's clicking. Job. Yeah, yeah, right. It's clicking. They found something. Whatever it is, it's hard work has paid off. I guess the Tech Three bikes are now starting to benefit from the stuff that the Works bikes mm. have found to, you know, really get them to the front. Because obviously Tech Three will be a bit behind in the development path or getting the yeah. parts, even if they're the sort of the discarded parts. So clearly the bike is good, it's getting better, and Fernandez is really giving a good account of himself. If I was in his shoes at the minute, I wouldn't be too worried about my place next year. Nope. If he, keeps this, if he keeps this up. Yep. Paul is the one who's going to be in trouble. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I don't think Pitt Byer has is the no-nonsense guy. He's not going to worry. Whatever. Unless they bring the Huskies in. Unless they bring the Huskies. That is true, which is possible. So... Uh, Augusto Fernandez fourth, uh, Aleish was fifth, Bender sixth after the penalty, Quattraro actually finished in seventh, uh, DG Antonio eighth, Nakagami and Frankie Morbidelli finished in tenth. So the hot, the Yamahas were actually seventh and tenth, which they stayed on, which was impressive. But yeah. I mean, that was a pretty, pretty wild, pretty crazy race. I mean, obviously, corrected for all the crashing that happened along the way, you is why Quattraro is where he is. But a man, I've never seen a man as despondent as Quattraro looks in the pits. Except for maybe Valentino Rossi when he was on a Ducati. Yeah. That's really terrible. Good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at the championship standings after all that. Benyaya still leads on 94 points, but Bezeki is one point behind in 93. Bender's in 81. If Bender gets his act together here, Bender can put a race at this title. I don't think Benyaya is done crashing. That's for sure. For whatever reason, I don't think he's done. He's a bit prone to it, isn't he? Yep. But after yeah. that, 
it's Martin, who is one point behind Bender, then Zarco, Marini, Vinales, Miller, Quattraro, and Wren. So European bike, European bike, European bike, European bike, European bike, European bike, European bike. Oh, European bike. Oh, Quattraro, first Japanese motorcycle and ninth in the championship. The top eight spots are occupied by Ducati and KTM. I mean, I would have never thought that, but yeah, where we are. Yeah, it's a different world, isn't it? a few years but it's done and dusted i say it's changed things have changed yeah anyway folks that great is weekend. our that was a great weekend that's the review let us know what you thought about it write us at motopod at motopodcast.com because all the hosts past present a lot of people chiming in on some of the stuff that's said so that's great love love the content love interacting with all you guys if you want to get a hold of me rich personally i'm at moto rgv instagram and twitter he is at richard jow instagram and twitter as well And with that, I'm going to tell everybody to ride safe. Cheers, everyone. See you next time.